Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. Today I am speaking with Dr. Donald Schaefer, who teaches history courses for Southern New Hampshire University and for a couple other universities. Today we will discuss his academic and professional background, his life as a history professor, and his research into Black Civil War veterans. Before we get started here, I'd like to offer a preemptive apology for my voice sounding so weird today. As you will see, it sounds like my side of the conversation was slowed down for some reason, while Don's was not. I have no explanation for it, and I don't have the technical know-how to really fix it, so prepare to be slightly amused and possibly greatly annoyed by my weird voice here. So what is your name, and what do you do? My name is Donald Schaefer. That's spelled S-H-A-F-F-E-R. The reason why I spell it is because... There are so many variations of Schaefer that um, I, I like people to be able to find me if they want to Google me or something <laughs> like that. And it generally helps to have the correct spelling. It's actually an old German name. It means shepherd. Oh, cool. All right. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about your academic and professional background? Currently, or really for the last decade or so, I have been primarily teaching history online. As a matter of fact, from about 2010 to 2016, I was teaching nothing but online, which um, for some reason, some people felt to be kind of cool. I mean, um, but it has turned out to be very advantageous in terms of my personal situation, which I suppose we'll get into at some point. About me personally, I'm originally from Southern California, Los Angeles area, Orange County, what people call the OC now. We did not call it that in my day. <laughs> I'm from uh, Northern California, so we always had the uh, NorCal really? versus Where? SoCal. I was um, yeah, so... north of Sacramento. Did you hear about the town of Paradise that burned down last year? Yeah, yeah, of That's course. my hometown. You're from there? Paradise, yeah. Oh, my. Sorry to hear that. Uh, luckily, I mean, no, none of my family was there anymore. I mean, some friends and their families were still there, unfortunately, but they all, they all got out okay. All right, so I'm from Southern California. And although I have not lived there in decades, um, I'm part of what I call the California diaspora. I presently live in um, the Phoenix area in Arizona, um, but I have lived many different places in the country. Um, I, believe it or not, went to college in Iowa, a small college. It was then called Graceland College. It's now called Graceland University in Lamona, Iowa. It was my mother's alma mater. And I wasn't even a um, history major there. I um, had a double major in history and, uh, I'm sorry, in business administration and economics. But while I was there, I had two close friends um, who did a summer internship at a historic site. And one of the reasons I didn't really do history in college was because I'd done AP history in high school and I'd done very, very well. And so, I, you know, I had no intention of ever going into history, but I didn't have to take any classes because I'd you know, tested out for a whole year in American history and that satisfied that. But the way they kept talking about it, I mean, it just sort of, you know, obviously it had been a tremendous experience for them. And, you know, when I got done my senior year, I had a whole summer until um, I was supposed to go off to graduate school in economics at UC Davis. And um, so I went, I actually sort of just a lark called this place and said, hey, you need any people? And they said, yeah, sure, come on over. So I did, and I, I was um, a historic 
interpreter for a summer. And I decided, well, I don't really want to do economics graduate school. So um, I basically came home to California. I got myself into Cal State Fullerton, where I ended up doing my master's degree. And from there, I, you know, by that time, I was pretty sick of, um, believe it or not, you can't get sick of California. <laughs> and um, so I said, let's see how far we can get away from California. And of all places, I ended up at the University of Maryland College Park. That's um, in the D.C. suburbs. And there I, um, you know, I got there and, of course, I hadn't pre-registered. And so they basically threw me into the seminars that um, were, were still open. And one of them happened to be Ira Berlin's slavery um, graduate seminar. And I was so impressed with him and so impressed with the seminar. He ended up becoming my major professor, and I am one of his students. So I did my dissertation on Black Civil War veterans. And that was eventually um, turned into a book that I published with the University of Kansas Press in 2004. And that's kind of my, my scholarly background. I was a teaching assistant at Maryland, and then I sort of bounced around through a, a number of one-year positions. The first was actually in San Diego at San Diego State. I was there for a year. Then I sort of crisscrossed the country diagonally. I was in SUNY Plattsburgh, Plattsburgh, New York, which is about as close as you can get to Montreal, Canada without crossing the border. I was there for a year, and then I was for a year at the University of Wyoming. And then for Wyoming, I spent seven years um, at the University of Northern Colorado and then three years at Upper Iowa University. And that's when I got into, they, they had an online program. And um, my wife at the time um, was sick and tired of Iowa. And so I took, uh, you know, they offered me a chance to join their online program. And so we said, okay, let's join the online program. We can live where we want. And that's how I ended up here in Arizona. Yeah. So you've been bouncing around all over the place. That's really interesting. And we, we may we may come back and touch on that a little bit, but I want to back up and go back to your your dissertation project. You said that was on Black Civil War veterans. But what was the focus and what was the general argument of that project? Well, first of all, I mean, nobody had really ever done much on it before. So I said, let's cast the net as wide as possible. And it really, the funny thing, it's, it started out, um, I, I don't know whether you ever heard of Lewis Harlan. I don't know. He um, did Booker T. Washington's papers. Okay. And his, my first semester as a student there was his last semester teaching. And before Ira would take me on as a student, he said, I want you to talk to all the members of, you know, all the Americanists on the faculty. So I faithfully followed his directions and I had a, um, you know, a, Nice long chat with um, with Lou, and and sort of said to him, you know, what do you think would be a good dissertation topic? And he sort of got thoughtful for a second. He said, you know what, somebody really needs to look at those Black Civil War veterans. And I said, well, how would you do that? And he says, well, if you go down to the National Archives, there's all these genealogists working on pension files. I bet you there's some pension files there that deal with Black Civil War veterans, and you know. I think Lou was just sort of talking off the top of his head, mm-hmm. but as it turned out, he was absolutely correct. Um, now there were about um, 180,000, that's more like 178,000 black soldiers who served in the union army during the civil war. And about half of them or their survivors eventually applied for a pension from the federal government. 
And in you in those applications, you find a lot of material in which they talk about their lives before the war, during the war, but especially after the war. And so I did a random sample of about a thousand Civil War soldiers. And then I took that um, and I tracked it forward. And about half of those had pension files. And that was kind of the core of what I used for my book. In addition, I also looked at every prominent veteran that I could identify, and that was roughly another 200. So it was it was quite a um, quite a bit of work. Yeah, that's a huge data set. And so, what commonalities did you find? What were what was the experience like for those veterans? Well, for one thing, I mean, you know, the thing you got to remember about the Civil War for Africa, you know, we oftentimes talk about World War II as the good war. Mm-hmm. Well, really, the Civil War is the last good war for African-Americans because it was a war in which they could say, you know, we really accomplished this, we destroyed slavery. Right. And these were essentially heroes within the black community. They were disproportionately represented among um, Reconstruction leaders. If you look at Eric Foner's um, data on that, um, yeah, it's pretty conclusive. He did that as a, as a data point. And, I borrowed that from him. And so you find them in in Reconstruction leadership and you find them in in leadership roles in the black community for the remainder of their lives. And they tend to be a little bit better off economically than the people who, the men that did not serve in the Union Army. And, you know, so they're they're, they're a very revered group within the black community. Now, they had an interesting relationship with white Union veterans. Because white Union veterans, you know, well, of course, there's, this is the, the height of racial prejudice. But one of the things you find is that there is a surprising amount of respect for the black veterans among white Union veterans. And you actually have, um, in some cases, especially in the North, black men who are members of what are otherwise white um, Grand Army of the Republic post. The Grand Army of the Republic was the main Union veterans organization. Now, down south, um, they tend to be segregated. Um, but when one, you know, department, that's how they organized, um, you know, at the state level, um, the GAR. And they basically, uh, one, and down in Louisiana and uh, Mississippi, they, they, they had a, one department that covered two states. They tried to exclude them from the organization, and the national organization wouldn't let them. Hmm. You know, so they, although they were willing to put up with you know separate posts, they would not let the whites you know branch off and, and form their own um, department and, and you know force the. So it, it's a rather interesting story. Um, now, of course, it didn't say that there wasn't a lot of informal discrimination in the GAR. But in the context of the time, it was um, extraordinary. Yeah, you don't want to pretend that it was some sort of racial utopia or anything. But, you know, in the context of that time period, not so bad. Yeah. So, I mean, the pension files have been a, a, a major, I mean, if, if, it, if this would have been a perfect world, if I could have you know done exactly what, what I wanted, I would have, you know, maybe done a, um, a documentary editing project. I mean, my my mentor had a dec- documentary editing project, um, you know, in the Freedmen's Bureau papers. And, you know, you had Lou Harlan doing Booker T. Wall. I mean, Maryland, a lot of the faculty there did editing projects. And, you know, somebody someday 
has got to go in and mine this stuff because it's not just for black veterans. There's just a ton of it for white veterans too. And at this point, it's mostly just used by genealogists. I mean, that was the kind of funny thing. I was there with the genealogist. I was not in the, you know, at one point, the, you know, they, they had me there in the genealogist. They was not out there in the main search room with the, the real historians. You know, but that was fine. Yeah, it sounds like it. It, it is surprising, like you say, that there has not been an edit, a, a major project like that. Um, I mean, the, ra- the racial angle is one thing, but you would think just from kind of a military history perspective, you would think that somebody would be interested in looking at that entire data set for all, you know, soldiers of all races, um, because you'd imagine that would tell yeah. us some amazing things. Well, it, it sort of has been. Um, the University of Chicago um, heavily quantified the pension files around the time um, I was there. They actually, uh, they they sort of... Um, subbed the work out to, of all places, Brigham Young University. And there were some BYU people there who, but they, that was, um, they were more, that was being done by sociologists. I mean, you know, people who are heavily, I mean, heavily quantifiers. That, that data actually is out there, but they weren't looking at it from, say, the, the social historian's perspective, which would be more what I like to do. Now, what I did do, is, you know, at the archives, you run into other people. One of the people I met there was a, a lady named Elizabeth Regison, and she was a, a graduate student, I believe, of all places back home, UC Irvine. And um, she and me eventually um, got together. We collaborated on a reader of pension files as they pertain to the African-American experience, and that was published in 2008 by New York University Press. That's my last major publication. One of the things I discovered about online is that, you know, I mean, I like I like living in Phoenix, but, you know, uh, it, it keeps me pretty busy and I just haven't been able to do scholarship as much as I would have liked. Um, but, you know, that was also having my children and we can sort of get into that uh, at some point. Okay, well, cool. That sounds like a really cool um, project, and it sounds like there is a lot of potential there. Um, do you think at some point you may pursue it even more, or do you think that with the book you've had pretty much what you, you've pretty much said what you're going to say about it, or do you think you may go back to it at some point? Well, if if the stars align right, and that's a big if for reasons that I'll make clear, what I would really like to do is I'd really like to write a book on the Civil War pension system itself because. Believe it or not, in the 1890s, it is swallowing up 40% of the entire federal budget, the entire federal budget. Now, granted, the federal government was not anywhere close to as big then as it is now, but that was still a, a, you know, a healthy chunk of change, you know, um, paying for these pensions. And I'm not saying there hasn't been any writing on it, but there is yet to be a good monograph on you know um the civil war pension system that's what i'd like to do yeah but the the sources are back in washington dc and i'm here in arizona right so. but that that's something i would like to do someday like i said if the stars align correctly mm-hmm. well it sounds like a you know it's a good project and so i you know i hope that the stars do align for you at some point because i think there is a lot of potential there because yeah the the civil war pension program we hear about it a lot. We hear about it, but yeah, you're right. I've, I don't recall seeing any type of in-depth discussion of it. I mean, there's a few, was it Thita Scotchpole who wrote on women and children? 
Yeah, the the the, the, the Scotch bull. She wrote about it in the context of um, you know, that along with mothers' pensions. Yeah. Um, but she she's not a historian; she's a sociologist. So right. Um, so it definitely had that kind of social kind of perspective on it. That was a little yeah, bit social different science. From probably social science. Probably yeah, a bit different from how a traditional or or a mainstream historian would probably tackle it. So I do think there is a lot of potential there. And um, so you know, I'm I wish you well, and I wish I could you know make it happen for you. <laughs> well, I wish you could make it happen for me too. I mean, you know, I mean. <laughs> Maybe at some point, I mean, you know, like I said, I'm kind of tied down right now, but 10 years from now, who knows? Do you, so what What have you been up to recently? You mentioned that you were teaching at a bunch of different places and now you're teaching exclusively online, or I think you said you're teaching at one place in person too. Well, like I said, in 2010, I left in-class teaching and I moved with my family here to Arizona. I came to Arizona because one, it's not cold. <laughs> Although, you know, sometimes it actually can get a little cold, but not by the standards of the rest of the country. I think it's, I think Phoenix has had recorded snow three times in the last hundred years. But um, the, the what was left of my family was here. And I've always been very close to my mother and to one of my sisters. And they were here. And so we came here. And I like Arizona. Um, you know, it's, it's, horribly hot here in the summer but <laughs> between you know where i was before it was horribly cold in the winter and between horribly hot in the summer and horribly cold in the winter i prefer horribly hot in the summer you know only place where you can walk around in your shorts you know i'd, I'd had enough of snow for you know i mean i'm not saying that if the right opportunity didn't come i wouldn't go back into cold country but um Arizona is very nice. I mean, it, it reminds me in many ways of Southern California when I was growing up, although it's also rapidly going to the way Southern California is when I left. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's very relaxed here. It's very relaxed here, and I do like that. One of the purposes of the podcast, as I mentioned before, is that we're trying to kind of give a sense of what career opportunities exist for history students after graduation. And so now that you've been, uh, you know, you finished up your programs, your academic programs a couple of years ago, what uh, what suggestions do you have for students that are looking to kind of get out into the the, the workforce after after graduating, either either with a, as an undergrad with a BA degree or even as a grad student with an MA or even a PhD? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> let me put let me put this way. I you know when I originally got into academia. It was because I was looking around at my professors and saying, I like what they're doing. This is something that I can imagine myself doing for the rest of my life. And that's why I was going to go on to econ graduate school. But then, like I said, you know, I realized that I wanted to do history instead because that was really where, you know, I learned, you know, I mean, just from listening to my friends and then being at that historic site, that that's really what my passion was. Um, but what I've learned is that traditional academia, while it still exists, um, you got to be willing to, you know, accept or, or to, you know, mold yourself to how it's changing too. All right. You know, I mean, for instance, when I went into online teaching, some of the people that I, you know, been my professional colleagues over the years were sort of like, you know, what the heck are you doing? You know, they they looked upon it as if I, you know, had announced to them that, you know, I, I joined the Moonies or something. Um, 
you know, I mean, they, they saw that, I mean, when, and I can understand where they were coming from. Some, there are some out online programs out there that I would just, you know, I would say that I wouldn't describe them as fly by night, but let's just say that educate, you know, actually getting students through the program is not their first priority. Yes. And I've taught at a couple places like that. I spent some time at the university of Phoenix I spent some time at Ashford and, um, you know, there are some serious people there. All right. But because they are serious for profit institutions and, you know, they've got owners and stockholders and so forth, you know, when it comes to push and shove between the, you know, the good of the students and the good of the stockholders, you can guess which way they go. Right. You know, but there's also good for profits out there. I've also, um, you know, one of the first places I started teaching in addition to, um, you know, Upper Iowa was um, American Public University System. And they mostly service a, a military clientele. They were founded by um, ex-military people. And, you know, I've had a, you know, journalist um, once tell me that they're one of the good for profits. And, um, you know, I've come to agree that that's the case. All right. But they've also paid a price for that. Um you know, but, you know, the, you find a lot, you just, I just discovered, so, I mean, you know, I would never, if you had told me back when I finished my PhD in December of 1996, that I would be spending most of my time in my easy chair with a laptop, tapping on a keyboard, um, I would have looked at you like you were, you know, ready to be committed. <laughs> but, Having done this for, you know, nearly a decade now, you know, it has become so natural and, you know, I mean, online education is not for everybody, Mm -hmm. but I think that history is a particularly good um, subject matter for it to teach online. And I really, I mean, it, it emphasizes what I think my strengths, I mean, you know, I certainly don't lack from oral communication skills, but I'm a much better writer. And, you know, I'm somebody who, you know, may not come up with the exactly right thing to say at the moment. But if you give me a little time to think about it, I can usually say something pretty profound and pretty worthwhile. And so that's, you know, I like online because it also, you know, appeals to my strength. And with the whole development of social media, um, you know, not for those six years, um, you know, I didn't particularly, I mean, I, I felt the absence of, you know, the department that you go to and the, you know, the people that you drink coffee with and, you know, gossip with in the hall, but it wasn't as big a problem as it would have been a decade before that. Right. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I had Facebook, I had Twitter, I had Instagram, um, you know, I had, I mean, I could, I mean, I was more, I felt myself more connected to the profession than I'd ever been at any time in my life. And I still do. Um, you know, it's not getting, you know, perspectives once a month and, you know, pouring through the Journal of American History and the American Historical Review and the Journal of Southern History and Civil War History and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, now, I mean, I get this stuff coming at me, you know, like, like a, a fire hose. And like I said, also, it's good for my personal situation because I have what you might describe as classic sandwich 
um, obligations, sandwich generation obligations, but kind of on steroids. What do you mean by that? Well, okay. I mean, I probably should. I mean, one of the reasons why I like teaching online is because it gives me a lot of flexibility. I mean, I am no longer married. I'm divorced. I do most of the parenting. All right. And I, you know, I have a special needs child. My daughter has Down syndrome. And then uh, my mother also lives with us and she gave up her car um, last month. And so, I mean, you know, um, that's why I, I appreciate, I mean, you know, I mean, my son's got to go to a doctor's appointment this afternoon. Well, guess who's taking it? Right. You know, but I mean, that's what I really like. That's another reason why I like online, because in terms of the, you know, my problems with, you know, work life balance, it's very helpful in terms of, you know, give me the flexibility that I need to, you know, have a meaningful career, but also be there for my family. And so before we move on to the recommendations, do you have any last thoughts that you think uh, would be relevant or that you think people might be interested in hearing about before we move on to the recommendations? Well, part of the reason, I mean, I hesitate to make recommendations except beyond being flexible and, you know, not being stuck in the past, you know, in terms of careers. It means the things have just changed so much. And I can't imagine that they're not going to change even more in the next 20 years. And so any advice that I could give, you know, a prospective, you know, student of history is, you know, um, be flexible and, you know, be on the lookout for opportunities you just would never have possibly imagined back in graduate school. Because, see, I don't know about what graduate schools are doing now, but I mean, when I was in graduate school, you know, I don't think that the professors that were teaching me for all their wonderful qualities as scholars and teachers were really up on the changes that were happening in the profession. And, and you got to educate yourself. That it's just that. And I think that's one of the nice things about social media is that um, there are plenty of people out there who, if for no other better reason, want to show you you know, how knowledgeable they are will educate you. All right. And of course you got to take what they say with a grain of salt, but you can learn a lot. Um, you know, simply from, I mean, that's how I built my professional network. I mean, um, you know, I just started friending people like crazy on Facebook and, you know, I learned from these people and I got my name out with them. And, um, like I said, I feel a lot more connected with the profession than I did 20 years ago. Yeah, I think that's good advice to kind of just keep your keep your mind open because I I graduated with my PhD in 2011 and um you know that's relatively recent within the past decade but I there was no discussion in that program that I was in for 6 years about things like teaching online um there wasn't a whole lot of pedagogy involved with it anyway but there was really no discussion of yeah teaching online or the future of education. It was just a lot of, you know, we're going to pair you up with instruct with professors that have been here for 20 or 30 years, and they're going to show you the ropes. And I think, like you say, a lot of the professors, well-meaning and well-informed and very well-educated, they just were not really aware. Or And it admittedly was hard to predict how education is going to change over time. And so I, I think that's I'm not faulting them, okay, but they were sort of they were sort of stuck in an older paradigm. Yes. 
And I mean, I think one of the things that's nice about, I mean, I've connected on Facebook with a few of my former professors at Maryland, and now they're aware of what I'm doing. So they can, you know, tell the people who've come, you know, since me, Mm -hmm. I suppose the constant now is change. Yeah. So at this point, I think basically we've covered kind of all the stuff that I wanted to cover. Um, And uh, do you have anything to recommend for us this week? Well, I can only, besides my, my own work, okay, I mean, let's not, um, if, you, if you don't promote yourself, nobody will, but, you know, my, my favorite book is not even one that de- um, deals with African-American history, military history, the Civil War. It's a book that um, a professor made me read back in graduate school, and it's a book that I, I love because it gets into... Or, I mean, I'm really fascinated with ordinary life. I know, you know, some historians just shy away from ordinary life because it's so boring, so quotidian. Um, but my, my all-time favorite book is Laurel Thatcher Allrich's Midwife Tale. Um, this was based on the diary of a midwife who lived in Maine in the era, and really the New Republic, um, late um, 18th, early 19th century. Um but basically, you know, it's um, the 1790s to just the beginning of the 1812. Um, I think that's when she dies. But I mean, uh, the one thing that first drew it to me was that my eldest sister is a nurse. And that she's no longer an obstetric nurse, but she was an obstetric nurse then. We'd have these long phone conversations because she just found, you know, that world of, you know, childbirth and midwives fascinating and she was just you know was you know plumbing me for details but it is you know, not just that it, it gets sort of it brings a, a a lost community and a way of thinking and just how ordinary americans were living their lives you know in the era following the american revolution and i just i mean you know you know it, it laurel thatcher or she was in at the university of um, new hampshire she's um actually won her a place at Harvard. She's at Harvard now. Um, and it won the Pulitzer Prize. And then later PBS did a docudrama that I, I still use um, in my in-person. Um, my friends, it's where I, I, the place I teach in person is a place called Benedictine University. They have, a, it's a, you know, there's, there's this really funny trend now of um, Midwestern colleges um, establishing um, branches um, in the Sun Belt. And Benedictine, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're actually, the main campus is in the suburbs of Chicago, a place called Lyle. Um, but they established this Mesa campus and they needed a historian. So, you know, I, I teach their classes, but I, I use a docudrama in the, in the survey class. And, you know, it, it's something that I think the students just get fascinated with because, you know, um, it, it, you know it's an eye-opening how, how just how people, you know, lived. And yeah, you know, I mean, in some ways, you know, how they were very much like us, but also very, very different. Um, and uh, you know, it's um, but it's you know, it, it gets into the whole, you know, the whole world. You get an appreciation for not just what it, how people what they did, but their mental world. You know, their mentalite to use that wonderful word um, from um, you know European history. 
But I mean, if I had to recommend one thing, that's I I mean, I just really love this book and I love this what what PBS did with it because they also include Laurel Thatcher, Thatcher Allrich in it, and she has a wonderful way of I mean, I I you know, she sort of sort of shows you you know the process of research and how you take that you know mass of I mean I I, I really relate to this because. You know, it's one thing, you had all these pendant files, well, all this information, how the heck do you turn it into a, you know, a comprehensible narrative into something that, you know, people can actually relate to? And the, the docudrama does that especially well. You know, so it not only teaches you about this particular community, it also teaches you a lot about the historian's craft. Oh, that's awesome. That's that's really useful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and uh, that's for that. It's you know, it's it's worth. It's like ninety minutes, and I, I try and show the whole thing because, you know, I mean, it's they 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 need to learn that you know history is not just about memorizing you know, dates, mm-hmm. and names, and events, and so forth. Right. Well, that's great. That sounds awesome. And yeah, I'll try to um, add that to my list of things to do. I'm going to actually recommend a poster that I actually stumbled across that was published by W.W. Norton, but it, it, I thought it did a really good job of kind of in one concise way of kind of summarizing a lot of the options that are available to people that have history degrees. And basically what it's doing is it's taking a bunch of data from the American Historical Association. Just about to say that I think they adapted that from um, something that the American Historical Association did. Oh, about a decade ago, they probably updated it, though. I didn't take too close a look at it because... Right. It was an AHA article. I mean, they've done this periodically. I think this, the most recent one, I want to say was 2017 or 2018. I think it's actually in the small print at the bottom of the poster. And what I'll do is when I put up this episode, I'll put a link to the... Um, I'll put up the URL for the poster on in the link and people can go see it. But Basically, yeah, they took the they did a survey of where do people with history majors end up going, and so you know a, a big chunk of them end up going into business and management. So people go unsurprisingly into law and politics and education, and so it breaks down the biggest areas that that history students go into, and then it tries to give a bunch of suggestions for possible careers within those within those buckets and within those areas. So you know, for the education, you talk about professor and all that, but there's also like museum docents and curators and within business and management, there's analysts and uh, banking associates, market research analysts, because that's those all employ a lot of the skills that historians have to take a bunch of huge data sets and be able to try to make sense of it. And so it does a really nice, concise job, I think, of summarizing a lot of the careers that are available to uh, history students. And so I recommend everyone take a look at it. And um, I, like I said, I will post a link to it on the uh, episode notes for this uh, episode once it goes live. So uh, thank you for uh, joining me today, Don. It has been my pleasure. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. For Don Schaefer, I'm Rob Denning. Have a good weekend.